welcome, guys. It's good to see you all here today. Uh, I just uh, just celebrated my 11th year wedding anniversary with my wife yesterday. Yeah, we made it. You know, I we were contemplating this last night, and we you know we thought. Now, I'm so glad to have a community to be able to do this together. I can't imagine uh, being a husband without other husbands around <laughs> to kind of walk with me in that life. My wife was the same thing. She can't, I can't imagine being a, a wife or a mother without having other ladies and sisters around and having that, uh, uh, the community to come in and help raise our children together. It's, uh, it's a blessing, and I thank the Lord for our church and for the body that we call uh, His. You know, and so, so we, uh, we, we are engaging in a new theme, or new series this week, uh, this, this coming few months. You know, our theme for the year of 2022 is Rooted in Christ, a year of Christ-centered growth. And we, we, we came, we, we, we kind of conclude this theme because the aftermath of COVID, the aftermath of being separated, the aftermath of being kind of isolated uh, due to the pandemic, what we saw was, we, we saw a community kind of fractured, a, a community kind of um, lost, because a, a lot of times we realized we didn't really hold on to our fundamental foundations of what it means to be a community, a people of Jesus, a people of God. And so we spent the first beginning of this year kind of helping uh, restore and, and reshape that mentality into our, 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 our church again, going back to our pillars of mission, of worship, of community, of discipleship. These are the things in which we live out our Christian life. Right? Rooted in Christ, living out our worship. Rooted in Christ, living in our community. Rooted in Christ, living out our mission. Rooting our Christ, living in discipleship. These are the things that are the, that, uh, the, the, the highlights, the pillars, the foundation of the Christian life. And then after, after creating that series, you know, we, we, we thought about it some more and we said it would be amiss for us to think that the Christian life is about what you do so much, right? See, we would forget that the Christian life is not about what you do, it's about who you know. And the Christian life is not about doing things for God, but ultimately we have to have the foundation that the Christian life is about being with God. Being in a relationship with God. Driving our closeness to God. As we spend a big chunk of that, I'm not sure about you, you know, like this, one of the few times I've preached a series that I was consistently learning as I was preaching through. You know, like I, I've, I usually do my best to try to preach you something that I know pretty well, so that I can't, I, I won't be able to say that I'm like a hypocrite about it, right? But it's very rare that I preach you guys something that I'm actually going through myself and learning myself, right? And it's been such a, Great eight weeks for me, personally, just being, learning to have a daily office better, learning to engage in the Sabbath, learning to uh, go back to my past and figure out what's really wrong with me so that I can actually rewrite a script for the future and a legacy for the Lord. Just really having that kind of inward emotional um, reflection and connection. It's been a, a true help for me and I, and. I I hope that as you guys were going through that, that was, it was a blessing for you as well. But if you, uh, if you missed it, go back and your YouTube channel is all there, okay? But today, I, wanna, I wanted to kind of continue this theme in addition to, to what we've been saying. If our relationship with Jesus is there, if, if, we are, if we see how important it is to be with Jesus, then the very next thing that we have to begin to understand is we have to draw near to what is important to Jesus, right? 
See, if we say that our relationship with Jesus is important, then we have to draw near to what Jesus deems as important at the very heart of his ministry. And you know what was at the very heart of his ministry? It was the church. It was the body. It was the community. I, I, I met a lot of people in my years of ministry who said stuff like, I love the church. I, love, I mean, I love Jesus. He's awesome. He's great. I just can't stand the church. And to a point, I understand why, right? I understand why. The people oftentimes hypocritical, demeaning, oftentimes legalistic, oftentimes looking down on their fellow brothers and sisters. But when we say that I love the church, I love Jesus, but I, I don't, can't stand the church, what it reveals actually is a fundamental misunderstanding of your relationship with Jesus. Because to love Jesus means to love his church, to love his body, his community, his family, okay? The church was at the center of Christ's heart. He went to the cross for the church. He stepped down from divinity for the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about the physical building here, the location. I'm talking about the people. He went to the cross for you, for me. So to say that I love Jesus but I hate the church is equivalent, right? I mean, he, I'm sorry, the, the, the way that the church is described in Scripture, five ways. It's described as the family of God, the body of God, the house of God, the bride of God, of Christ. And to say I love Jesus but I hate the church is equivalent to you saying to your buddy, bro, man, I love you, bro. I love you, man. But I just can't stand your wife. She's super annoying. Right? How, how would he have, how can you respond to that? How should he respond to that? Or if he says, yeah, right, something wrong with that guy, okay? But if he says, I love you, man, but I can't stand your wife, the proper response from the husband would be, if you love me, you should love my wife too. Because my wife is dear to me. If my wife is dear to me, and you say you love me, then you should love her. Right, how about this? To say that I love the church, Jesus, but I hate the church is like your buddy calling you up and saying, hey, man, you want to come over? And you saying to him, well, it depends. Is your family there? Because I, I just can't stand your family, right? Your kids, your group, and just, nope, can't stand them at all. They are the worst. Now, if you are a family man and you heard your buddy say that, what well, do you say? Like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Let me come over to your house. No, hopefully... Hopefully you would say, hey, man, that's my family. That's my kids. That's my wife. That's my kin. If you love me, you got to love them. Right? Or, or wives. If another wife called you up and said, I want to hang out with you, but can we not go to your house? Right? Because your house is ugly. Right? I mean, I want to be around you, but I just don't want I can't stand your body. Okay? How... How would you respond to that? And so Jesus, think about this, right? Jesus declares that the church is his body. The church is his family. The church is his bride. The church is his house. It sounds funny, but if someone says they love you, but they can't stand your spouse, your family, your body, or even your house, they don't actually love you. Because to love you would mean that they, you would... You would, they would love the very things you identify the most with. 
And what does Jesus, who does Jesus identify himself the most with? It is the, say it, church. It is the people of God, his people. Jesus Christ identifies very intimately, very intentionally, very intensely with his church. And so the question that I have for you today is, do we identify with the church? Do we identify with the church the way that Jesus does? Do we see her the way Jesus sees her? Do we give ourselves and prioritize the church like Christ did? Because to say, to say, I love Jesus, but to have no relationship, no connection, no growth within the church and among its people, no intertwining of storylines, no living of each other, no bearing one another up, if you don't have that, then the reality is there may be something wrong with your relationship with Jesus. To say I love Jesus is equivalent to saying I love what he loves. Right? You know, when I married my wife, you know, like Asian parents and grandmas, you know, they have these things where they, like, they'll talk smack on their, on their, um, their bride or their, their daughter-in-laws, you know, and they'll tell you to whisper, you're like, don't tell her, okay? Don't tell her I said that. And I was like, She's my wife. Like, how would I not tell her? I said, shh, it's our secret. It's our family. Right? And I told her. I, told my, I remember I told my mom and grandma. And I think this is when they stopped talking to me, right? I told them, like, if you love me, you have to love Trisha. We're a package now. It doesn't, we can't disconnect that way. Right? You can't talk smack on me and uh, smack on her and think, like, you know, it's going to be okay with me. Mom, grandma. So the question, again, is do you identify with the church the way Jesus Christ identifies with the church? Okay. Now, not so that you can check off a religious box saying that um, I go to church or I'm here. But you identify with the church. You prioritize the church. You, you place the church as part of your very rhythm of your life. Because why? Because simply Jesus Christ loves the church. And you love Jesus Christ. And therefore, you love what he loves. So who is the church? That's the series. The series that we're going through today or this next few weeks is who is the church? I want to spend a few weeks exploring the identity of who makes up the church, the people, and then a few more weeks unpacking the implication of that identity. Okay? I know some of you guys are thinking, oh, man, there's another message about the church. Right? What, what relevance does this have for me? Okay? What, how is this going to benefit me at all? I think I've heard this a million times already, PT, but I'm, this series is actually very relevant because we're going through a letter called the letter, uh, it's the letter to the Ephesians that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And this letter, it's all about the church. It's all about the people. And so if you are here today, and if you think you are a Christian, this series is very relevant to you because it will tell you whether you really are a Christian or not. And if you're sitting here today and you say you are a Christian... This series will tell you whether you are living consistently with what you believe or not. And if you are sitting here today and you don't actually really believe in Jesus or kind of have kind of rejected him over the years, this series is one of the best ways to help you know whether you are rejecting something you understand or not. Because a lot of times when I talk to somebody who said, I rejected Christ, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in this church thing, right? Usually when I ask them, I say, hey, um... What, what do you think the church is? What do you think Christianity is about? And rarely do I have an answer that, that shows that they understand what they really think about Christianity. Because when they say something about Christianity, I was like, I don't believe that either. Like, you don't believe that? I don't believe that either. 
right? So this, this series is really very relevant to you as we talk about the church. One, it's going to reveal what's truly in your heart. If you're a professing Christian, it's going to really show you whether you really are a believer or not. If you say that you are a believer and you know you're a believer, it's going to share with you, are you living consistently with your belief? If you're a non-believer, you're secular, you just kind of hear, you hear, you hear your, your, you came, you, up, you show up, and you kind of want to listen in. It's going to share with you what Christianity really is about. And hopefully I can unpackage all of the lies or maybe misconceptions and preconceived ideas that you have about Christianity. Okay? So who is the church? Really, we're going to go through about six verses. There's a lot of stuff in these six verses that, when I was, again, when I was writing it, it ended up being eight, ten pages. So we're doing one point, okay, one point, one point uh, of it. Who is the church? The church is a people marked by truth. Marked by truth. I have the notes on there for you to follow if you guys would like to follow along. And, and if you guys later on uh, want to go over the discussion stuff, I have some, like, resources there, too, to get you guys to understand some of the stuff. But... Who is the church? The church is a people marked by truth. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This is the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Ephesus. Let me share with you guys what he said. Verses 11 to 16 is what we're going to read. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 16. Listen now. In him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Would you bow your heads with me right now and we will pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. And God, as we go through this series, I pray that as you speak through me and worthy as I am, Father God, that the message and the truth of what you are saying become a reality. I pray, oh God, that it will convict, awaken hearts, that it will bring repentance, that it would encourage and strengthen the followers and the sons and daughters who are working so hard, Lord God, to love you and to honor you. And I pray, oh Lord, that you will use it and everything about it for your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Who is the church? The church is a people marked by truth. Okay, look at verse 13 here. Let me start there. And you were also included in Christ, you being us, right? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Christianity starts by hearing something, not doing something. You guys get that? Christianity starts by hearing something, not doing something. What is it that we are hearing? We're hearing a message. We're hearing a word. We're hearing a body of content. And what is this body of content? This body of content, Paul says, is the truth. And what is this truth? It is called the gospel. It is called the gospel. Okay? And we got to talk about truth for a second. Because this is such an important part of the Christian life. Is what you build your foundation off of. It's, 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 it's important for all of our lives. 
is that we all build a foundation off of a truth, but what truth are you building it from? So let's talk about truth for a second. Because Christianity is a people marked, the church is a people marked by truth. You know, we live in a world where the common dialogue today about truth is, you know, live your truth. Have you guys heard that phrase? Live your truth, right? I, t I told the, the YouTube kids this and they didn't know it. So I was like, am I old or am I now younger than you? What is it? Am I more hip than you now? What's going on, right, right? But it's the phrase, you know, live your truth. Or a more derivative phrase of it would be, do you, boo, right? Or you do you, right? It's a more derivative phrase of this idea, live your truth. And, and, and the concept behind of, you know, uh, doing truth is that, uh, living your truth is that, you know what, your truth matters, my truth matters, our truth matters. If it matters to you, good for you. If it matters for me, good for me, right? Let's just keep it relative. Your truth cannot overcome my truth. My truth can't overcome your truth. We are living in our own truth. Do your truth, right? Or do you boo, right? And you know, do you know, and this came, this came around 1960s-ish, right? Do you know why this came out? The idea of um, have everyone having their own truth? It, it came from a very optimistic place, very, very pure place. The place was, it was designed to give voice to the marginalized. It was designed so that if you live in a society that's domineering, that's oppressive, full of privileged people that gets a say, the live your truth concept is the best way for the voice of the silenced to be heard. So now the marginalized get a say in society. That was the whole reason why this idea popped up. It was to lift and elevate those who could not speak and those who were not able to have their truth be shared because they were marginalized, they were underprivileged, they didn't have the same um, things. No one has the truth. No power to be has the truth. Everyone's truth matters. So it started off very beautifully. You guys get me? And this is the truth we still expound today in our culture. Right? You do you, I do me. But the problem here, over time, is that if you keep saying that all truth doesn't matter, eventually you can't denounce anything is wrong. Do you guys get that? When you begin to say that everything is okay, all truth is relative, all truth is cool, you don't have a ground to say you can't do that. You can't have a ground to assert that something is wrong because to assert something is wrong means that you are asserting that you know what is right. So the point of this is, what I'm trying to get at is this. We live in a culture that says you live your truth. We wanted the truth, the idea to be liberating, but it ends up doing what? Nothing. Because you can't object to anything. Instead of freeing the oppressed, you know what ends up happening now? Instead of freeing the oppressed, we live now in a society where the marginalized get to say their own truth, and you just went, you just went, you just, you just, uh, um, you just took it back. Now the marginalized becomes those who are oppressing those who weren't once their oppressors, saying that if you don't say what I say, then you're wrong or you're canceled. So the oppressors now, no, the oppressees now becomes the oppressors, because now they're standing against a truth, a for truth. Everyone holds to something, is my point. Everyone holds to something that they think is right and they think is wrong. The real question is what? What truth stands the test of humanity? 
whose truth actually invites someone in and loves. At the heart of the Christian message, a people marked by truth is a man dying on the cross for his enemies. And Christianity has always asserted that there is a truth. We have never asserted there is a relative truth. We have always asserted there is a truth. And we call that truth. We hang everything on the truth that we call the gospel. So let me talk to you what the gospel is. The word gospel means, what do you guys think? Good news. It's a good news. It's something that has happened in history. Something that has happened as an announcement that now we are now living in. Okay? The Bible has a lot to say about how we're supposed to do something. And I think as you guys follow the church and you guys thinking about Christianity, you're thinking, oh, the Bible tells you about how to do this, how to do that. How to... All of that's important. All of that is great. But how you should live is only based on what has happened in history. We live in the how because of what has happened then. We live now living the way God has called us to live because of what has been done for us in the past. Live this way because Christ has come back from the dead. You guys get that? Right? You are called to live. See, Christianity is not just a, if you begin to derive Christianity into a, a, a faith about just do this, do that, do this, you, you're making it sound like every other religion. We're not. Christianity is not like every other religion. Because Christianity is not just about how you're supposed to live to save you. Christianity is about what has saved you. And because of what has saved you, now you live your life this way. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news on what God has done to save you. So based on historical happening on what God has done for you, it forms now the basis of how you ought to live today. You guys get that? So when I tell you things about how we ought to live, how you ought to be a man, a certain way of being a husband, a certain way of being a woman, a certain way of roles and leadership, and a certain ways in which we raise our family, those how-to... Is simply based on what? Because what he did, now I will do this. Not because I will do this because I'm ha I have to. The good news, the truth that we hold on to is that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. He died for the sins of the man. He came back from the dead. And because he came back and he claims to be God, everything in which he says to us to do, now we do. Okay? It forms the basis on how we should live. That's why when Paul says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. Christianity is about hearing this truth. Do you understand this? The good news that I'm trying to share with you today is this. It's very simple. I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life specifically yet, there yet. I'm telling you there is something that has happened in history. There is something that has gone happened in history where God himself became man he took on the sins of the world, he died on the cross, he was buried, and on the third day, he came back to life. And what he claimed to be was God of the universe, God of all creation, who has come to save humanity. And that is the news. He came back to prove it, and now because of that news, how are you going to live your life? How will you choose to live your life? That's the truth that Christians hold on to. That's what we cling to. I don't cling to my faith because my Bible tells me this is how I'm supposed to live as a man. Yeah, that's great. But if Jesus never came back from the dead, whatever. I can do anything I want. But if Jesus Christ came back from the dead, then there must be a way that he's called me to live. 
There must be a way in which he called me to be. I am a person marked by truth. And I live my life based on this truth. So here's the application for you guys. If you are here and you don't really, you're not very fond of Christianity, but you're here anyways and you're just kind of sitting in and you're just listening. Thank you for showing up. But most of the reason why you're probably not fond of Christianity is you're not fond of the Christian ethics. Right? For example, you reject Christianity because you might believe that uh, what the Bible says about sex and gender is regressive. What an old school way of thinking, PT. What an archaic way of dealing with life. You may not like what the Bible says about sex and gender, but the question is this. Does that mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead? You're like, what does that have to do with sex and gender? It has everything to do with that. Because if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, who cares what, people, what the Bible says about sex and gender? It's just relative anyways. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, who cares? But if he did come back from the dead, if he did rise again, then you have to deal with everything on what the Bible tells you you ought to live and how you ought to live, which includes sex and gender. You guys following me? I'm not trying to, like, force something upon you. I'm just trying to lay it out for you here. If this really happened, then this is what we're called to do. You can't reject Christianity as wrong by going to what the Bible says how you ought to live first. You can only reject that Christianity is wrong if you went back and you asked a question. You checked the evidence of the resurrection. You checked the claims of Jesus. And you've come to the conclusion, I don't believe there's a resurrection. I don't believe that Jesus is God. Period. I reject Christianity. Okay. At least you're being honest. All right? But if you really look, if you really went back and you looked at it, you looked at it. I tell you the truth, guys. When you hear this good news, it will change your life. God came back from the dead. Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And everything he says about you, everything he says, his promises to you will stand true. Everything he said about you is true. Christianity is not an advice on what you should do. But it's a primarily a good news on what you, has been done for you. Because Christ has come back from the dead, live your life like this. So here's my, here's, here's my application. It's very simple. Okay? If you say you're a Christian and this truth is not the driving force of your life, you're probably not a Christian. Can't sugarcoat that. Okay? If you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, P.T., But this truth is not the driving force of your identity. You're probably not a Christian. You feel safe and connected to a Christian community. People around you make you feel welcome. You love how everyone shares. Generous, kind. You love the the community aspects. You love raising kids together. You love uh, doing things together. But you no sooner would walk away if something came and disrupted the sense of that safety. How many times you've been in the community and all of a sudden you move away and you lose your faith because you couldn't find the same community that you found here? Just because you like being together does not mean that, that, that if, if Christ and his truth of the gospel is not the driving force of your identity, you're not going to stay a believer. It's just words. 
you probably declare that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And you can probably do a big part in serving the church and doing the things for the church. But you probably live your life driven by the security you feel with the amount of money you have in your bank account. That's your driving identity. Or you probably live your life driven by um, the status or position you attain from work or school and how people view you from that status and that, uh, and that uh, position. Or you're driven by personal happiness or fulfillment. It's all about what makes me happy. It's all about what makes me feel good about myself. It's all about what's good for me. Or you're driven by the need of a relationship. Right? Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Savior. I'll serve the church. But what's really important to me is whether my boyfriend really likes me. Or whether my girlfriend really loves me. Whether my children really think I'm a good father or a good mother. Or you're driven by what you have and what those things imply to others around you. I got a car. I got a house. Oh, I'm established. I'm mature. I'm well off. I've made it. See, if you're a professing Christian and the driving force of your identity is not the truth of that Jesus Christ came back from the dead and now my life should be a reflection of what he calls me to be, it's probably true that you're not a believer. But if this good news is the driving force of your life, then the question for you is this. Are you living consistently to what the implication of the gospel is in your life? Are you living consistently? If you tell me, I believe, PT, that I am a, I am, I'm saved by my Lord Jesus Christ, I have given my life to him, this whole life is given to him in, in, in every aspect, then the question I'm asking tonight is this, today is this, are you living consistently with that? Are you gut-checking your heart day in and day out, asking the question, am I being consistent to what he's saying? He came back from the dead. He calls me to live this way so that true humanity can be a reflection of my life. Is my life actually living that way? Are my eyes fixed on Jesus in every aspect? When you're in school, are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are you surrendering this life to him, this one life that you have to him? You're not trying to live anyone else's life. You're not trying to pick up anyone else's story. You're not trying to recreate any other storyline. You're living the life that he has beautifully made for you. You have one life to give. You're asking him the question, here is my life. You came back. You redeemed it. You restored it. You bought it with your, with your, with your very blood. What do you want me to do with this life, oh God, as I'm studying? Is our eyes fixed that way? Or is your eyes constantly thinking, I got to go to school. I got to get out. I got to graduate. I got to get the job. I got to get the internship. I got to do all these things. Are you only focused on the abstract and not the driving force? The driving force that you have to ask day in and day out. Is Jesus Christ truly, Lord, living in this life? Am I surrendering my school, my education to him? Are your eyes fixed on Jesus, Christian? Because we are a people marked by truth. If you are a person marked by the truth of the gospel, what should come forth from you is a supernatural reflection of that truth. If you have known that Jesus Christ came back from the dead and you are now living in the aftermath of that truth, your life should be a reflection of that power. Are your eyes fixed on Jesus when you start in your career? When you start in your career, are you, are you seeking to bring excellence to your job, whatever the job is, for the glory of God? We have seen, 
We have seen countless stories in the Bible where men and women worked in their careers that they hated. Tyrants that they worked for. And yet they did what? They gave excellence to the glory of God. They lived for the glory of God. They worked for the glory of God. They reflected him in their jobs. Are you fixated more on asking the Lord, God, here is my life. Here is my work that you have called me to use for your glory. What do you want me to do? Or are you fixated more on how you, rep, uh, on how you are trying to advance your own life and your work? Got to move up ahead. Got to get a couple more jobs. Right? Got to get that pay raise. Got to do something that makes me happy. Are your eyes fixated on Jesus? When you start the process of marriage and propose to your fiancé, it's the first thing you do is to open your Bible and say, God, teach me what it means to be a husband. Or you, you propose, like, oh, now I got to fix, now I got to focus on what my wedding day is going to look like. Wedding day is important, no doubt, okay? I'm not downgrading that. Ladies, you can have your wedding day. What I'm saying is this, the moment you propose, the moment you say, I'm going to start a family with this guy, with this girl, you open the word of God. Are you asking God, God, teach me how to be a husband. Teach me how to be a wife. Teach me what it means to come together in union that we would reflect your glory and build a legacy for your kingdom. Anything outside of that is useless. See, are you fixated on Jesus in the way you begin to even engage in your family life? How about this? Are you fixated on Jesus when you, when you start a family? When you begin to have kids? When Jesus calls you to be a father and a mother. When your son is first born, your daughter is first born, you look at them. It's the first question that comes into your mind is, I'm going to try to give you everything you have. Everything I never have, I'm going to give it to you. Or the first question you said, oh God, sinner as I am, teach me to raise this kid to know you and be known by you. What are you raising? What legacy are you building? Are you just trying to raise children and trying to keep them up to par with the other children, with your friends and your neighbors because you're thinking they're behind? They got to learn piano at the age of two, right? They got to have a basketball scholarship at the age of four. Right? Are, you, are you running through all these things? Or, the, or is your mindset asking the question, oh, God, what must I do? To teach them you. Do you understand this? Let me tell you. I'm not, this is not downgrading CM. I love our CM. Our CM is doing a great and fantastic job. But their job is not to raise our kids. Right? Our kids spend 15,000 hours in the secular school system that teaches them all of this relative truth. And they come on a Sunday and they color Noah and... Right? And do, do you really believe that that's enough to raise them in the Lord? Like, what did you do? Color... Who? Noah. Oh, at least you know his name. Praise God. Right? Or are you actually seeking with all of your heart, Lord, teach me, humble me, break me, that I may know what to say, how to say, and how to raise this child in your name. You guys get me? We are a people marked by truth. A truth that's supposed to transform us, not leave us complacent, a truth that is supposed to bring us into a supernatural reality, not living day to day in our 
world trying to catch up or chase after something that everyone else is chasing after. The truth of Jesus Christ come, dying, coming back from the dead tells us, I have a plan for humanity. I have a plan to restore humanity. And I'm going to use you to do that. And in order for you to do that, you have to trust me. You have to trust me. Can you trust me? I died and I rose again for you. Trust me when I say this right here. This is my plan. If you would walk in this, if you are faithful in this, if you would submit to this, if you would obey this, you will see flourishing. You will bring flourishing. You will transform this world. But if you profess my name, but this truth is not deeply embedded in your heart and not the driving force of your identity, you will not hold sin at bay. You will let sin move more and more pervasive into this world. You guys realize that? You know, I, I was, I think I'm, I'm getting old, right? Oh, well, I am getting old, but you know, mass shootings, mass shootings. I think when I was a lot younger, they didn't hurt me as much. They were very abstract to me, right? And I see it on the news and I feel it. But like the last one, the last one, it kind of it, it hit me, right? I think because I have kids now, right, because it hit me. And, I'm just, and, and I have this really bad problem. I'm, I'm hearing these stories and, and all I do is I imagine Seth and Enoch in it, right? Someone busting into their classroom, shooting them down. And I imagine myself walking in and just seeing their bodies like that. And I ask myself the question, what would compel anyone to do this? What would drive anyone to do this? And the only answer is, and, and our dumb politicians and everyone else around us is like, oh, this is the reason, that's the reason. You know what the reason is? It's sin. It's the pervasiveness and the brokenness of what sin does in a life. And sin is only there when the people marked by truth no longer seeks to live in that truth. You know what, let me tell you. You know how God, on the side note, you know how God holds back sin in this world? He creates barriers to keep sin at bay in this world. And I shared this with you guys before. The first barrier he creates is the moral conscience, your conscience. He tells you in your heart what is right and what is wrong. He keeps sin at bay. And when we begin to do what? When we begin to make truth relative, when we begin to make right and wrong relative, all of a sudden that barrier is taken away. And now we can act, do what we feel like we think is right. But thank the Lord that he also created another barrier. So even as an individual growing up, you think that you know better, you think that you have your own truth, you have a family unit, which is the second barrier. A mother and a father raised up in a way that honors God that says, let me show you how to actually walk in the right way. I know that this is what you've been taught. This is what sin is doing in your life. It's making you question all truth and reality. But father and mother, we have walked in the ways of the Lord. We have known his truth. Let us guide you back to it. And when you break the family unit, and we have broken the family unit, have we not? We have broken the family unit. We have made marriage and family about love. One way, that we, we, I mean, at the heart of it, I get it. You elevate love. It's, who cares if you're just loving each other? That's the problem. You, you elevate love and you take away the barriers that God has placed there to keep sin at bay. And what happens? Sin begins to be pervasive. I asked the youth group this question. What is the problem? How do we fix this? And the one thing they kept saying is, there's something wrong with the condition. Can we fix the condition of how the kids are grown up so that they don't end up being like this? I said, yes. 
And you know what the condition is? It's like, what? The family is one of the conditions. Men leading as men. Women leading as women. Fathers and mothers raising their child in a spiritual legacy that actually directs them towards the road that is thin and narrow, not the wide, where everyone gets lost. And then after that, when we've broken down the family unit, we've broken down the family unit, do you know what the third? It's the government. It's, 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 it's a government that, fight, that, that, that seeks for um, order and justice, that punishes crimes when it's committed. You know, our, our, our founding fathers once said this. They said, a democracy cannot exist without a moral and just people. You have to have a truth that guides your action. And so when the government fails, when the government area has been lifted, guess what happens? Sin moves further in and furthers in and further in. You guys get me? And then you know what the last barrier is? It's the church. You. Me, us, the community marked by truth. We are the last barrier to keep sin at bay. Now, have we failed? Have, have the church failed before? Yes, many times. You're thinking, oh man, we're screwed. Yes, we, we are, but thank be to the Lord. Thank be to God that our truth is amazing. Our truth tells us this that even though there is death, there is resurrection. Do you guys understand that when, even when the church failed, and it has fallen, and it's still falling today, there's a self-correcting mechanism in this truth that leads the people who listens to this truth, who lives by this truth, who obeys and is directed by this truth, as a self-correcting mechanism to restart the whole process once again. When the word of God begins to seep into your heart, and the truth of God begins to pierce into your soul. What happened? Your moral conscience is then restored. And in the moral conscience, when the person and the son and daughter is restored, they grow up, they become a family unit that does what? That seeks to maintain and to minister that moral justice and moral truth before the word of God to the society around them. And as that group begins to grow, they become the very civilians and the very citizens of a nation, of a country that provides and does that once again for the country. But here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. It all comes down to this. Are you marked by truth? Are you a person that is marked by this truth or is this truth relative to your life? Because it should change you, not leave you passive. And here's my last encouragement for you guys. Now, I read this this past week. Actually, let me just read this verse 14 for you guys. Verse 14, it says this. <laughs> so when you have heard, uh, when you've heard the, the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into the temptation of, to, into the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you are a believer and you're saying, PT, I'm trying. PT, I'm, I'm fighting. I feel like I'm failing. It's so hard. I always feel like I'm missing out on life. I always feel like it's never enough. Everyone's enjoying this beauty around me. I'm not able to do it because I'm just caught in this grind and I just feel like I need to grind some more so I can get there. I'm always feeling like I'm behind and I'm losing out. And this is God's word to you. Having believed this truth, Having believed this truth, you were marked with a seal. This means 
you were marked with this seal as a what? As the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You know what the Word of God is saying? You know what the Bible is saying here? He's saying the moment you believe, whatever it is right now that you are struggling with, that you feel like you cannot overcome, the Word of God is saying you have been marked by the Holy Spirit. It is a guaranteed um, deposit. You will get over it. You will push through. You will make it. Though there is mourning, there is rejoicing tomorrow. You will get there because you are marked by God. Sealed by his Holy Spirit. You are a son and daughter of the living God. You are not defeated. You are a defeater. You are not a passive watcher by. You are someone who is to advance the kingdom of God. We are not afraid of the mastery that's happening. We are now calling ourselves sons and daughters who are going to raise a generation that will face that better. That will raise children who will honor God, who will love the Lord, who will obey his truth, who will stand firm to his ground and actually do something for the next generation. You are not going to lose because you have a God who has deposited his spirit in you. You guys follow me? And for you guys who think you're missing out, I'm missing out, PT. I'm this age and I still haven't gone on a single vacation. I'm watching Facebook and everyone's at the beach somewhere, somehow. And I just want to be there. I can't afford it. And I'm just thinking I'm just, my life is all, I'm this age and I can't get a job. Or my job is useless or I can't even get a, a wife or a husband. I'm just missing out on life. Can I tell you, you were marked for an inheritance of a redemption of those who are God's possession. You are God's possession here. For what? To the praise of his glory. You are marked for glory. All of this right here, all of this, it's like a Denny steak. Right? If you've never had anything else but Denny steak, you're like, oh, that's a pretty good steak. I like that steak. I liked it. It's great. And you, and, 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 and you make people feel messed out. They don't eat a Denny steak. But the Christian has tasted have tasted a real steak. And when a Christian has tasted, my wife told me not to use this analogy, but that's the only one I have, right? When a Christian has tasted a real steak, a Denny steak, yeah, I mean, I I can eat it. I mean, it's nice. I can go back to it, right? But I've tasted something so much better that this pales in comparison. The life that you are in now, the stories, the sights, the sounds, the things that that you think you're missing out on, It is the cover page to the great story. It is a mere salad to the actual course meal (laughs) that you will enjoy, right? It is just the beginning, a mere morsel for what's to come. You are not missing out. There is nothing to miss out because when Christ comes, the beauty of his glory, the pulsing of it will eradicate everything in this world that we thought was beautiful and it will restore to this earth, to this creation, to this thing, a beauty which you have never even understood. And then you will look back and you will ask the question, why did I long so much for a Denny steak when this was all mine all along? My prayer for you, church, is this. Taste that the Lord is good. Recognize came back from the dead. You are a people marked for truth. Live this truth 
live this truth, his truth, the truth. The Bible says what? The truth will set 